Well, those of you who are visiting, be sure to come back next week. Um, those of you who are regulars and you knew this was going to happen, bless you for coming out. <laughs> so I'm Chris. Um, I will not presume to pre- give a sermon. I think you were prepped on that. I am a teacher, though. I teach high school. Um, so that's my lane, high school. Okay, I do. I dabble a little bit in middle school. That's a special gifting. Um, I don't deal with little ones. That was gone. So fluid problems are not my thing. Attitude, that's better. Okay, anyway, I do a high school honors and AP, English and social studies. So that's me. So um, we will be sharing some of my thoughts and analysis. So before we begin, let's pray. I just thank you, Jesus, just for this time, Lord. Just, just thank you for the blessings you've given us, Lord, just the peace that we have to meet here, Lord, and, and just all that you've done just to, just to bring us together, Lord. I just pray your blessings on this message, Lord. I pray I would speak as I ought to, Lord. I just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your power and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In 55 BC, Julius Caesar marches eight legions, which totals about 40,000 men, north from France, which then was called Gaul, um, to the Rhine River. The Rhine River was regarded as the boundary between Roman Empire and the barbarian, the Germanic area, yet to be unconquered. No one had crossed the Rhine. The Rhine was a significant obstacle. Julius Caesar in 55 BC will march his 40,000 soldiers to the Rhine River. He will build a bridge. He will use local timber. He'll get with his engineers, and they will create a basically an innovative style of going across the river. Um, they will do all of this with local materials, with his engineers. He will have his highly organized and motivated soldiers. They will build this bridge a little over 1,000 feet across the Rhine River, um, ranging 25 to 35 feet deep with very swift and uncertain currents, um, basically slamming in m- uh, massive logs and diagonals to protect um, the bridge against the river's currents. The bridge is going to be wide enough, the pictures I saw, wide enough for anywhere from 10 to 15 soldiers to walk side by side across. The idea is we are Rome. We are legionnaires. We do not row across. We march across. They're going to have a bridge that's strong enough to handle all 40,000 men plus officers on horseback. They will accomplish this in 10 days. They march across the river in 10 days. Um, on the opposite side are the 100 to 200,000 plus German warriors. Watch them. They will march across. When he gets across, Caesar will explore the territory for 18 days unopposed. No contest. After 18 days, Caesar will march his eight legions back to the bridge. They'll march back across the bridge in the Gulf. They will dismantle the bridge and go home. This is how I like to begin world history. I begin my Roman unit. This is Rome. This is the ethos of Rome. We are Romans. We are superior. Rome will go where it wants, when it wants. And no one will oppose us. Um, since Julius Caesar, and it becomes Caesar Julius Caesar, it expands, and by the time we get to Mark's Gospel, the period where Mark is generally regarded to have been written and circulated 60 to 70 AD, Rome has expanded its influence. Um, Rome will dominate essentially the, the whole Mediterranean basin from Israel um, all the way to into Germania. They're still fighting um, into Germania. Um, all the way up into inner Scotland, um, entering into Scotland. There's a second wall that's being built in Scotland. That is German. They will have trade networks that reach to China. 
Um, during the reign of Augustus, you have the Pax Romana, which is like a piece of Rome. It's not that everything was at peace, they're still fighting on the borderlands, but they kind of took care of the banditry. So band getting rid of like making it safe for travel and for trade is really good. There's a lot of trade networks. One of my favorite things when I did teach world history would be do a food project. By the way, side note, food projects are great things to do. Especially when you know that kids have like ethnic parents. Oh my gosh. I've actually had some really good recipes this way. We do a food project, and the food project is everywhere from Scotland to France to China to India to Egypt, anywhere on the northern African. This is Rome's trade network. The message is this is who Rome is. The Roman ethos, their character virtues, their values, who we are as a people. We are superior. We are superior in engineering. We are superior in military um, laws, culture, poetry, philosophy, religion, trade, social organization, government, medicine, hygiene, first indoor plumbing and hot water you find in Rome. Um, Rome will develop concrete. How they did that, we don't know because we lost it, and that will not be seen again until like, you know, much later, later Middle Ages, Renaissance. So Rome is an advanced culture, and these are the people that are listening to this gospel. Um, this gospel. When I teach AP language. So you're all going to be really excellent AP language students. Okay? You're welcome to, like, you know, make the occasional appropriate comment, but you're going to be quiet and listening for the next two hours, because, you know, the Niners don't play this evening, so I've got all kinds of time. So, anyway, I was told to stop. I don't know. I've actually been known. I'm, I'm watching the clock, so it's really helpful to have a clock there, because, anyway. When I start AP language, one of the first thing we do is, is, uh, uh, Aristotle's rhetorical triangle. By the way, this is as far as in the Greek I'm going to get. Okay? So if you want to hear Greek, again, come back. Okay? For the Greek speaker. Ethos, that's a Greek word. It means you know, like your character, virtues, and values. And Aristotle will have a rhetorical triangle. And I lead off with AP languages as a persuasion argument class. Um, the rhetorical triangle is like three points. Speaker, message, and audience. The point is, the message is going to reflect who's speaking and who's the audience. And I'll come back to this. Um, typically, in, in Mark, like I said, is published, it's uh, printed and circulated, well, printed, it's distributed, it's written and circulated right around 60 to 70 AD. Speaker, Jesus. But Mark is compiling things. We look at the four Gospels, and each Gospel is like an, a persuasion presentation. I was encouraged not to say argument. The argument felt too strong. It's like we're arguing. It's a persuasion presentation. Okay? Um, we look at Mark's gospel is largely um, attributed to Peter's information, looking at persuading the Romans, targeted to Romans. So Rome is the central or immediate audience for Mark's gospel. And within that audience, we have the true groups, the Roman Christians and then the Romans themselves. And it's important to keep in mind this you know, cultural ethos, which I think we can identify with as Americans. There are a lot of similarities between how Romans viewed themselves in AD 70 and how Americans view themselves. So this is the, um, the scene. Um, with the Christians, an important context is persecution. So under, kind of really kind of getting kicked up under Nero with the great fire in AD 68 when, when Nero... Um, Decides that he's kind of tired of the Christians, or he really wants to clean out a whole section of town and rebuild it. So he starts a fire and blames it on Christians, and it begins Christian persecution. 
Um, interestingly, um, while Nero is kind of like a lot of Christian persecution with Nero, persecutions were really kind of built from that point. So when Mark's gospel is presented, again in like probably the late AD 60s and 70s, persecution is becoming a normal thing for Christians to have to deal with. Um, persecution, martyrdom, is becoming a normal experience for the church, and the church is having to start to deal with this. How is it? You know, what's, what's this, this tension, this paradox of like, we have life in Jesus, and yet we're being persecuted. Um, you know, and then after, after Julius Caesar, it's still a very chaotic time in Rome. You know, where they go through a number of different Caesars, and then, then the next one who picks up continues the persecution. So persecution is becoming a regular thing, and it's intensifying over the next several centuries, actually. So it's not going to slay um, anything that's going to go away. So in the middle of this, this is the Gospel of Mark. And so AP language students, we look at, you know, each Gospel is a persuasion presentation. In other words, each writer is selecting events that happened during those three years that they're together, or before the three years in Jesus, with Jesus, and they're selecting events to present an argument about the nature and character and truth of Jesus. Now, for example, Matthew is specifically focused to the Jews, and so I have a lot of Jewish stuff in Matthew. Um, John is very specific. He's focusing on the divinity of Jesus. He articulates that. Um, Luke's Gospel is more focused on Gentiles. That's why it includes a lot of other things, including women. Um, Mark is targeted to the Romans. And so then we'll look at why does Mark, what's the purpose of the events that Mark chooses to include here? And what's he doing with this? That's AP language thinking, analysis. He's not just looking, okay, this is what he says, but like, why is it there? What's the purpose? Where does he want to go with this? So we start out. So I'll be uh, working through Mark 10, chapter 10, uh, 13 through 31. Doing good. So just the first section, 13 through 16. Um, this is still Jesus. Uh, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Right off the bat, perspective. One of the main things that I see here is the perspective on the people, perspective on the children. Whatever you want to think of the WWJD movement, what would Jesus do? Um, perspective. By the way, this is a cool thing because in my honors classes, and actually I have like honors students, and my honors students are ninth and 10th graders, so freshmen, sophomore. Um, and they have like older siblings who have, were in AP and have graduated. And so a great thing to do is like, well, WWLD, what would Lainey do? Okay. What would your sister or brother do? The implication is that, well, they got really good grades, so what will you do? All right. Um, I like this line, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So then the question is, well, what does Jesus mean to this? mean by this? Enter the kingdom. Anyone who looks, who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Now, it's interesting that the disciples immediately rebuke the children, keep the children away. The master is teaching. And Jesus is like, no. 
this, this is how you should be as children, coming, open, ready to hear, ready to receive. The idea is that what's Jesus' perspective? Jesus takes the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blesses them. Jesus loves the children. He wants them to be there. We look at his actions, and that means he wants them to be there. What do children bring? You know, we talked about birthdays. Some of you are more experienced in birthdays, obviously, than others. You know, um, kids love gifts. Most people like gifts. I don't know. If you're a kid, you like, you know, if you're, when you get older, you like shaking the gift, and you get a little more circumspect. This is a gift. Well, who's it from? You know, and then you become, ah, well, we'll see. Is it great? Oh, that's great. Also, a really thoughtful gift. Well, this is a gift. All right, so, you know, whatever. But kids love gifts, okay? When we were young, Rachel's not here, but when we first had Rachel, um, we had all these, we were um, in California, and we were, had all these presents, and she took three days to open her present because she would open a present. Oh, this is so great, and she would play with it. And then she would play with the box and the stuff and the wrapping paper, and the ribbon. I'm like, that's great. Let's move on. I got to tell grandma and grandmas that you love their presents. So it took us a three-day event. So the kids love their presents, and that's the idea. Receive the kingdom of God like a child as a gift. Open, welcoming, but also helpless. It's an interesting thing. The children need they recognize they come to Jesus they're drawn to Jesus the children being very vulnerable being very helpless is an attitude that makes us very receptive um, the people for us the children receive the kingdom of God as a gift like us the point is the people are utterly helpless on their own to get the kingdom it's not a merit it's not an earning it's something we have to receive and being having our heart open to receive that is a key factor Realizing that we are helpless in our efforts to enter the kingdom. And the kingdom is something that God gives and we receive. Key point. Um, and Jesus' actions, interesting, um, offers concrete evidence that the blessings of God are freely given. In this culture, children, I mean, it was in this culture, it would have been very appropriate. The teacher is speaking. Children need to be quiet. Right? Go, we'll have like children's time like, you know, later. You know, it's very appropriate. But here Jesus welcomes them. He's like presenting this message. The kingdom of God is for everyone. The kingdom of God is for those who wish it, who want it, who want to come and receive it. Open, free, like little children. My thought was the audience message. So this playing out to people in Rome, to the listeners, to the Christian Roman Christians, being helpless is not necessarily a negative trait. You can certainly imagine the Roman Christians. They're experiencing these things. Why doesn't God intervene? That's like the forever paradox. Why does God allow this to happen? Why doesn't God intervene? We are helpless. And then people may be looking at the Roman Christ at the Christians in Rome. Oh, you're just you're helpless. You can't do anything. Rome is superior. Rome will take and persecute you and throw you in arena, etc. Why would I want any of that? You know, why would I want to join that? Message, being helpless is not necessarily a negative trait. From the kingdom perspective, God's purposes move more, seem to move more freely the more open we are to letting him speak through us. The less likely we have a bias. Um, one of the things we do in, in AP literature is listen. A 
other, along with the rhetorical triangle, we, listen, we talk about listening. Now, listening isn't just listening, it's hearing, really hearing the other person's perspective. For example, one of the things, first things we touch on is the pro-life, pro-choice scene. If you're going to, as Christians who are actually going to have an impact, if you want to have, actually have an impact with someone, you're dealing with someone who's in a crisis moment, they're not Christian, and they're considering you know, what to do with their unplanned pregnancy, and they're talking to you, presenting your argument on all the reasons why they're wrong may make you feel superior and good, but doesn't really accomplish anything for the person. So what we talk about is listening. This is for any topic, anything. And we use this example as it's a poignant one. You know, listening to what's going on with this particular person, their argument, what's happening with them, really hearing their perspective. And then you have a connection. And then you have a relationship. As we move on, Jesus continues. Verse 17, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. I love this. This is another AP language thing. Good. What do you mean by good? By the way, I actually have a, a thing in my, in my well, it's, a, it's actually was carved from, you know, for a, by a, a, um, a guy who builds cabinets with his dad. It's a piece of marble call, carved into a tombstone. And on there, we have a bunch of words written, like good, bad, it, you, things that I never want to see in your writing, because they're too vague. Because it's said, what do you mean by that? So words that are gone. So good, what do you mean by good? In this, in this scene, though, Jesus catches him on this. Good teacher. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Now, in this time period in Judaical thought, Good in Old Testament, this term that's being used, I won't presume to go to the Greek. By the way, I'm okay with being corrected next week, just so you know. <laughs> good is only connected with God. When somebody used a term that this guy uses, it's connected to God alone. You know, it's not like kind, pleasant, welcoming, you know, nice, helpful, good. That term is, is associated with God in Judaical thought, in the Old Testament. Is it connected to God? And Jesus calls him out on this. What do you mean by, why do you call me good? No one is good. And it's an interesting one, because it's like, okay, lightweight, why do you call me good? We, we want to just kind of move on, but it's a really kicker point. Because he catches them on a key perspective error. And we still run into this. And I'm immediately reminded of C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read, it's, a, it's mere Christianity, but C.S. Lewis is a great read for communicating gospel truth to people who don't believe in the gospel or the Bible. Okay? It's a great Christian philosophy. It's a little dense, so if you feel like, man, this is tough. Yeah, it's tough, okay? So it is. It's all right. Um, by the way, side note, if anybody has bookshelves, I have, I was like talking with Pastor John about starting like, like a little uh, sharing library here. So if anybody has a bookshelf, wants to build a bookshelf, wants to contribute a bookshelf, see me or Pastor John. We'd love to get that set up. So I have a lot of books, Christian books at home that would be good to like share and bring in. So this being one of them, C.S. Lewis is great as I love on this whole good thing. Jesus being a good teacher. Oh, we like Jesus as a good moral teacher. And Jesus calls him out on that one. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, 
I'm here, I am trying to, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg. This is C.S. Lewis, by the way. It's a long time ago. British. Or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him, Jesus, up for a fool. You can spit at him and, call and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Important perspective. One of the messages I feel Mark is making, Jesus and Mark are making, is this perspective change. Getting the perspective right. Who is Jesus? Now, Jesus is going to build this up, but he catches on this. He says, why do you call me good? It's in a really key perspective switch. I'm not just good. I am God. But, Based on the way Jesus responds to him, we believe the man to be sincere, and so Jesus gives him an interesting answer. So he runs up. So he continues, so no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. By the way, he's a great teacher. I feel like Jesus would have done really well in a high school classroom. Just me. It's like, I see a lot of this. It's like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the answer, right? Come on. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher! He declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Boom. We're good. Jesus, I love, this is a really interesting line. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I appreciate that because it really cues us into the whole attitude and dynamic of the exchange. The tone. So when we go to Jesus' response, Jesus is not trying to shame him, embarrass him. Jesus loved him. Jesus is trying to direct him. Dude, you need a perspective change. To help you out for a really healthy thing, you need a perspective change. So he says to him, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Again, to the perspective change. You know, and it's still, I mean, it's a, it's a hard one, you know, to shake, especially, you know, when doing new Christians, especially when um, you know, I used to work in a, in a, in a ministry, Project Compassion, to a lot of AIDS victims, um, AIDS people, HIV AIDS people, or, or if you're dealing with people in a crisis, or people have done a lot of stuff, they know They've lived a really, you know, unhealthy, unsavory environment, health, lifestyle. And now they're coming to the Lord. And it's really hard to shake this feeling that I need to do something. I need to shower somehow. I need to clean somehow. I need to do something and try to, you know, prove myself, earn this, merit. Jesus says, no. It's not this achievement. It's not earning the kingdom. You cannot earn the kingdom. You know, Matthew 
Matthew's gospel really lays into this Ten Commandments. It's like, well, we don't do the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are, are great, but they're all action-oriented. You don't earn the kingdom by keeping the Ten Commandments. But even in Matthew, it's a fun one, because in Matthew, Jesus delves into the heart attitude, intentions and heart, which makes it more complicated, right? I think a lot of Americans, we talk about the, you know, the statistics around this country and how a lot of Americans you know, will click yes or say yes to the pollster, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm good. I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't, you know, I haven't lied. I pay my taxes. I haven't stolen anything. You know, I'm a good person. I, you know, I take care of my mother and father. We're good. But that's not Christian. It's something more. The inherent Christian life is another word I use on my kids really early on. It's this agape. Oh, sorry. That's the third Greek word. That's going to be it. Okay. Agape. Very simply, is where you put someone else's self-interest ahead of your own. Self-sacrifice is part of it, but it's where you do something for someone else without expecting or gaining any material benefit back to you. Agape love, agape lifestyle. You're going to do something for someone else. Um, And it's interesting that this guy, I kind of wonder this man came up, again, Analysis reading. If this guy presumably knew this, that these are the commandments, these you've kept, he's kept them for a boy, these commandments are like, oh, have I done all this? No, he knows. I've kept, oh, that's great, the commandments, excellent. I've done all this. But there's something in him, it's interesting that he asked a question in the first place. What is it? It's just an interesting little side character. It's not really addressed, sort of, but it's interesting with this, this man who comes in there, he feels like, I've done all the commandments, but he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's something more. Of course, for us, it's that connection, that relationship with Jesus. It is deeper. It's this agape. It's this giving up of your self-interest. It's the perspective that we are helpless to gain the kingdom. We are helpless on our own. We need the Lord. Central theme. That it's available. The gift of the kingdom is available to us. Um, to those who acknowledge the helplessness in relation to God and the kingdom. Um, and it's a call, it's an inherent call to self-sacrifice. So for the Roman Christians hearing this, I really feel like it's an affirmation that what they're going through is not an oops, it's not a mistake. This is part of it. Um, your agape, to begin with, your giving up your self-interest, is giving up what your pride, like a lot of us, a lot of people who have to come into the Lord, giving up a pride, giving up a self-reliance. A self, uh, we need God. We're Americans. We're not used to that kind of feeling, right? When something's not working, it should be fixed, right? You go to the hospital, fix it. No, we can't fix this. What do you mean you can't fix this? This is America. Fix it, right? Something's not working, you can fix it. This is, we grew up with this ethos, with this character values. If it's broken, it could be fixed. In fact, it should be fixed. Things that are not working should not be not working. They should be working. Is there, you know, we don't just, we're not defeatists, okay? We're Americans, right? We're superior. This is how it is. And God says, well, but you are helpless to get this yourself. Following things, not doing things, isn't enough. And he lays this out for this person. Now, he tells them, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then 
come and follow me. What this is not saying is that, oh, if you do this, it's not another action merit thing. Oh, so you sell everything, and then I can get heaven. Got it. Easy. Something I can do. I can control. No. Um, it's not a way to earn or deserve heaven. Interesting one. My thought is that the call of the gospel is an inherent call of self-sacrifice, this agape lifestyle, but it's different for everybody. Different people have different obstacles. Different people have different things that come between you and like a full experience of God. You know, for this man, it was his wealth. For Jesus, it's like you have all this wealth. For you, I love you. I really want to see you not drive off the cliff. I really want to see you take the right road. For you, you need to give up your wealth and come follow me. Which is, again, a pretty radical shift in the Judaical world. Having wealth is a great thing because then you can do a lot of good work through the wealth. You can earn a lot of good merit. And so it's wonderful. And Jesus says, give it up. Now, interestingly, how would this play out? In a Roman world with Roman superiority and wealthy Romans hearing this, give up my wealth? Are you kidding me? That's not very attractive. But interestingly, I don't think Jesus is saying give, give, give. My take on this is exchange. You're exchanging your focus on your material world for a focus on the eternal world. You're exchanging your treasures here, your stuff you have here, for a kingdom perspective, a much bigger perspective. You're exchanging what you feel, what you want to do, the path you want to go down, what gives you pleasure. You're exchanging that for what will actually give you true happiness, true purpose in life, really living in sync with where God wants us to be, God wants you to be. It's an exchange. So for Romans, wealthy Romans hearing this, it's not like, oh, now I have to go live in the street and be poor. It's an exchange. I give, and then I have, I experience a true full life. A treasure in heaven. You have a security. And this would have, I think, really resonated with the Roman Christians who are there. You have a security. In the middle of all this chaos, this increased persecution, all this craziness that's going on, there's a security. That's solid. The kingdom perspective, like whatever God's doing, is God's doing it. I'm here along to go along with what God is doing. And God's in charge. God's big. I think, and Pastor John has mentioned, he said, if you say God is good, you really believe that God is good, then everything else will follow. And what's happening is God's purpose, and it will be good in the long run. Um, so then the man goes away. Interesting contrast with the children. Well, the children receive another kind of picture example of receiving the kingdom. The children run to Jesus to receive the gift. They receive Jesus, they hang out with Jesus. The man says, and for the moment at least, the man goes away. Sad. But Jesus isn't done. Again, this is a great teaching. And Jesus has looked around and saw his disciples and said, in verse 23, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And he goes on. I said, how hard is it? <laughs> verse 23, uh, 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said again, hey, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's like one of those great statements. It's a, it's a question, but it's a statement. 
that demands a response. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, looked at the disciples. With man, this is impossible. Well, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a great teaching strategy. What? What? I said, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And people are going to have, oh. It's hard. It's like a camel. You give a real extreme example. Great attention getter. And then you make people think, which I think is Jesus' purpose here. Great strategy. Questions. Questions inspire thinking. Okay? It's easier. Well, then who can be saved? Then who can do, you know, then what? You know, that can't happen. And Jesus looked at them and going, with man this is impossible, but not with God. God, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And I like these extreme kind of images because the people are going to be dealing with this. You know, so if you have Romans who are listening to this, so how's this going to work with God? I mean, so, how, you know, you've got this obstacle. And I think it's a personal catch. You know, we have obstacles. We think we can never deal with this. I can't get rid of this. There's this thing that's in my face that's just causing me issues. Or, I got this thing. I like it. You know, do I really want to get rid of it? Eh. No. How can this really work? Addiction's a wicked thing. You know, we deal with a lot of, you know, with people with HIV AIDS, that was a big thing. Addiction is like, okay, so you come to the Lord, but then you're still dealing with the addictions. It's like a continuous thing. Can we get addictions? So a lot of healings from that. God, all things are possible. Very, very encouraging thing. Um, but it's not quite the end. And then Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I love Peter. Peter's great. Think of all the great Jesus quotes we have because Peter felt like he had something to say. <laughs> Which, you know, again, the great teaching technique because kids will say something and they can go off of that because usually if one student mentions it, others are interested in it. Well, then we left everything to follow you. And Jesus, I think, is going to hit that perspective. Um, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters who has, I'm sorry, let me read. No one who has left home, brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. The exchange. You leave things, you gain things. There's an exchange. And this is great. So you gain homes and brothers and sisters. Who's he talking about? The fellowship of the church. The fellowship of the people. You may leave your home, but you gain all these other family. And homes. And birthday parties with food. Right? Um, you gain all of this. Oh, and with them persecution. Wait, what? Let's <laughs> wind that back. What did you say? And the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Let me just wrap up with this. With them persecution. It's for the Christians in Rome experiencing this. I think it's not, you know, they're going to experience what they're going to experience. But the knowledge that what they're experiencing is not an oops, is not, oh, Jesus is gone. It's not like a mistake. It's part of the deal. 
I have this poster that actually I have at home. I need to bring back. It's great. It's this runner, this woman who's running. She looks like she's just got through with a marathon, okay? And she's bent over, and she's like, <sighs> right? And the big thing is, of course it's hard. That's what, of course it's hard. If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be worth as much. I put down my classroom wall. That's great. So it's going to say, it's hard, Mr. Smith. Yeah. You're an AP. It's hard. But what you gain is super valuable. And you have things that you're dealing with and things that you feel are obstructions to what you can really gain. But Jesus leaves us with a very comforting thought. Right? With man, with you, this may be impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible with God, his perspective. So, thank you.